Good morning, brothers and sisters. Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start with prayer. Gracious Father, I'm so thankful for what you've done. That we can read from your word and know the truth of who you are. That we can see your goodness, your mercy, and your grace. That we can learn about who you are. We can see who we are. Our need for you, our need for a Savior, and our need for your grace in our lives, Lord. So I pray this morning that you would open our hearts to understand your word, Lord. I pray that you would give me the words to say, that you would give all of us ears to hear and hearts to understand. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 9. We'll start reading in verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy. His righteousness stands forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also abounding through many thanksgiving to God. Because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, long for you because of the surpassing grace of God on you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Why do we give? There can be many ideas about this. So take a moment and think for a second. Why do you give to the church? Or to other causes. Or perhaps for some of us, take a moment and consider why you don't give. Do you give because it makes you feel good to help others? Or because you heard a pastor say you should tithe? Or because Christians are supposed to give? And how much do you give? Why do you give that much? Who or what do you give to? Do you give to grace and truth, some other ministry, secular causes like the Red Cross? When do you give? Do you give every week? Or do you give when you have some extra money or when you get a paycheck? How do we know the right answers to these questions? What does God require? How can we obey and honor God in our giving? 2 Corinthians has the answers to these questions. As we dive into 2 Corinthians 9, we're going to start by taking some, a look at some background in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8. Then we'll look at how we should give, how God blesses generous givers, 
And then the response to giving. As most of you are aware, I've been teaching a class on financial stewardship. So when I considered what to preach this week, my mind went to the things that I've been studying for that class. And as I thought about what would be most valuable to share, it became increasingly clear to me that the most important passage from the class and the thing that I'm burdened to share with you today is 2 Corinthians 9. And specifically, the theology of giving that Paul shares with us in that passage. So please bear with me for a few minutes here. Since I'm bringing us into this passage without having taught all the way through 2 Corinthians, I need a little bit of time to set up the background and context, especially, as I said, from 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8. So turn back to 1 Corinthians 16. Now let's read the first three verses. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to set aside something, saving whatever he has prospered, so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them, I will send them with letters to carry your gracious gift to Jerusalem. So we see here, Paul's organizing a collection for the church in Jerusalem. And he orders the Corinthians to gather a collection as he had directed the churches of Galatia. And the Greek word here that's translated directed is diatasso. And it has this sense of giving orders. For example, in Luke 3.13, collect no more than you have been ordered. Or Acts 18.2, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. So Paul has used his authority, both apostolic and as their, quote, father in Christ from 1 Corinthians 4.15, to command them to take up a collection for the Jewish believers. And based on what we see here in 1 Corinthians 16, he expected them to obey. And from what we read in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it's clear that at first they were ready and desired to do so. There's a few quick observations we can take away from these verses. In verse 1, note that the collection is for the needy saints. In verse 2, he instructs that everyone should give. He says each one is to set aside something. He also instructs to give regularly. He says on the first day of the week. And finally, according to what they have. When he says, as he may prosper. But a question comes, why was a collection for the saints in Jerusalem needed? We can see that in Romans 15. In Romans 15, we see the outcome of the collection that's commanded here and is exhorted in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Romans 15, starting in verse 25, reads, But now I am going to Jerusalem to serve the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to share with the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. And when we see here Macedonia and Achaia, Achaia was centered in Corinth. So when you see Achaia, he's talking about the Corinthian givers. So there were many Jewish Christians who were suffering from extreme poverty. They could not even provide for their most basic needs like food and shelter. And this is likely at least partially due to the persecution that was coming from the Jews to Christians in Jerusalem. So this gives us background on what was being collected, why, and for whom. 
It was an offering for the Jerusalem Christians because of their great need and poverty. Now, let's look at the example that Paul uses to encourage the Corinthians to complete the work of giving that they started in 1 Corinthians 16. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 8. We see there the example for the Corinthians, the Macedonians. And the churches in Macedonia were the Philippians, the Thessalonians, and the Bereans. Let's read 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Now, brothers, we make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great testing by affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the richness of their generosity. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the grace of sharing in the ministry to the saints. And this, not as we had expected, But they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So we encouraged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and word and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though being rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And I give my opinion in this matter, for this is profitable for you, who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it, but now complete doing it also, so that just as there was the readiness to desire it, So there may also be the completion of it from what you have. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For this is not for the relief of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little had no lack. But thanks be to God, who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our plea, but being himself very earnest, he has gone out to you of his own accord. And we have sent along with him the brother whose praise in the things of the gospel is throughout all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself, and to show our readiness, taking precaution, lest anyone discredits us in our ministering of this generous gift. For we respect what is good, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many things, but now even more earnest because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and of our reason for boasting about you. Now, we won't go into too much depth here, but just to bring out a few points that are important as we consider the passage in 2 Corinthians 9. Notice that the Macedonians were in great testing by affliction and had both an abundance of joy as well as of deep poverty which abounded unto a richness of generosity. 
The Macedonians were in extreme poverty, yet they had great joy to give beyond their ability. Why? How could they do this? We see that in verse 1. It was the grace of God given. So we see first that the Macedonians gave beyond their ability, though they were in great poverty and affliction, because God had given them the grace to do so. And why does Paul bring this up here? He's using the Macedonian example to encourage the Corinthians, and by extension to encourage us to give. In general, the Corinthians had more wealth than the Macedonians. The Macedonians were in deep poverty, whereas Corinth was a generally wealthy city, and the Corinthians were also more affluent. His argument is, if the Macedonians can give out of extreme poverty, can you not give out of your wealth? Paul then uses the rest of chapter 8 to exhort the Corinthians to complete the collection. The collection they had begun a year ago, and which at first they had desired to do. And then also to inform them of the committee coming to oversee their collection. He reminds them of their own promise to give in verse 6, their desire to honor God in verse 7, the eagerness of the Macedonians in verse 8, and finally the supreme example of giving, that of Christ in verse 9. And then in the second half, he reminds them that he's going to send a delegation to oversee the collection. Now finally, by way of background, let's look at verses 1 through 5 of 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 1. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boasted about you to the Macedonians, that Achaia has been prepared since last year. And your zeal stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brothers, in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that, as I was saying, you may be prepared. Lest if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, be put to shame in this certainty of ours. So I regarded it necessary to encourage the brothers that they would go on ahead to you and arrange beforehand your previously promised blessing, so that the same would be ready as a blessing and not as a begrudging obligation. Here, interestingly, we see Paul reverses the relationship of the Macedonians and the Corinthians. In chapter 8, Paul uses the Macedonian zeal to stir up the Corinthians. But we see in 9, 1-5, that their original zeal and eagerness was what stirred up the Macedonians to give. And Paul uses this reality and the fact that he had boasted about them to apply pressure and to encourage them to now finish the collection that they were so eager to complete at first. He also applies pressure by reminding them that he and they would be ashamed if the Macedonians were to find that their eagerness was all talk and did not produce an actual offering for the Jerusalem church. There's one last question that we should consider. That is, what changed between 1 Corinthians 16, where they were eager to take a collection, and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, where Paul feels the need to exhort them and even to send Titus and his delegation to supervise the collection. Well, we can see that from other parts of 2 Corinthians. We see that there were Judaizers who came teaching a different gospel in 2 Corinthians 11.4 and 11.22. And at another point, Paul was openly insulted by someone in the anti-Paul clique to which Paul wrote a severe letter calling for his punishment. We see that in 2 Corinthians 2.6 and 7.12. And all of this tribulation likely caused a hesitation in the minds of the Corinthians about the giving. 
It's not surprising that if they're losing confidence in Paul, his apostolic authority, his teaching and his leadership, that they may hesitate to give to the collection that he initiated. But now many of those issues have been resolved. And so we see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that Paul is exhorting them to give as he had already commanded to. Okay, that concludes the introduction. Hopefully that context will be helpful as we consider verses 6 through 15, which starts in verses 6 and 7 with how we should give. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In verses 6 through 10, Paul uses an agrarian analogy to help us understand giving. He starts in verse 6 with a very obvious principle from farming. If you use a small amount of seed, you'll reap a small harvest. If you use a large amount of seed, you'll reap a large harvest. This is plainly obvious to all of us, even though most of us have never been farmers. The word translated blessing in the LSB, it says, He who sows with blessing will also reap with blessing. That is eulogia. And it gives a slightly different implication to the, to the translation that you might see if you have the ESV, which is bountifully. And the verse does have the idea of bountiful giving here. But it also speaks to the heart attitude in giving and in receiving. The one who gives bountifully with the intention of blessing will reap bountifully in blessings. And this implication is important for our understanding of the verse. The principle is simple, as I already mentioned. The more you give, the more you'll receive. But importantly, the wording also hints at the importance of the heart attitude in giving. It's not that we give simply because we want to receive, but because we want to be a blessing. And to encourage us to give bountifully and to be a blessing to others, God reminds us and in fact promises us that we will receive bountifully and with blessing. The same principle we see throughout Scripture. For example, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. Honor Yahweh from your wealth and from the first of your produce, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will burst with new wine. Proverbs 22, 9. He who is generous will be blessed, for he gives from his food to the poor. Malachi 3, 10. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says Yahweh of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and empty out for a blessing until it is beyond enough. And the words of our Lord himself in Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. This principle of reaping much and sowing much is all throughout Scripture. We also see in verse 6 how God-centered Paul's teaching is here. In verse 10, we will see that Paul reminds us that God is the one who provides the seed, alluding back to the very seed that's sown in verse 6. And in 2 Corinthians 8, you remember, Paul starts with the fact that the most Macedonian giving was the grace of God. This statement in verse 6 oozes with God's grace and goodness. He's the one that graciously provides the seed. He's the one that graciously provides the ability and the desire to give. 
And he even rewards that giving with bountiful blessing. It's with that understanding that we consider the point that the one who sows bountifully with blessing will receive bountifully with blessing. So yes, we do desire to give more because we know God will reward us with blessing. He does promise us that here and in Luke 6 and Malachi 3 to encourage us to give more. But only if our heart attitude is correct. We want to give more because we want to bless more. And we want to receive more blessing. They all work together. And that's why we reject the heresy of the prosperity gospel. It comes down to the attitude of the giving. In fact, the prosperity gospel preachers, they're not wrong when they say that God promises to give abundance and even material blessing to generous givers. That's true. They get it wrong when they make the material wealth that the giver receives the reason for the giving. We don't give because we want to get rich. We give because we want to be a blessing to God. If you hear a preacher saying, give me $1,000 and God will make you rich, reject that. That's not true. God will bless bountifully those who give bountifully with blessing. Now, as we move on to verse 7, as we consider how we give, note the beginning of the verse. Each one must do. That's the same phrase that we saw in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, when it said, on the first day of the week, each one of you. And Paul's emphasizing that giving is for every Christian. No one is exempt. Some of us have more than others. Some of us can barely afford to meet our most basic needs like food and shelter and clothing. And nonetheless, we all must give. It's not just for the rich. It's not just for those who have extra money that they think they don't need. It's for all of us. And for all of us, if we give bountifully, God will bless bountifully. The phrase in verse 7, purposed in their hearts, is not a casual idea. It's not like, I see the, the offering plate come by and then I purpose in my heart to give $5 today. That, that's not what it means. It means that we should determine through deep conviction what we purpose in our hearts. It requires a meditation on God's word and a firm decision. Then that decision should not be grudging. The word grudging here is lupe. It literally means sorrow. In other words, our giving should not cause us sorrow or grief or depression. We give because we want to give. And after giving, we should feel joy because... With our giving, we can honor God and demonstrate his goodness to us and to others. And note, the decision also should not be under compulsion. No person should force you or require you to give anything. You should not feel pressure from anyone. You should not be feeling pressure from me right now to give. I'm happy to share what God has taught us in his word about how we should give. But I'm not pressuring you to give anything. I'm not telling you you should give more or that you should give 10% or 20%, or any specific amount. No one has the authority to tell you how much you should give. And we can see why Paul includes this here. I even mentioned it earlier. Paul's applying pressure on the Corinthians here with these statements. And he doesn't want them to then give because they feel forced to. He doesn't want them to feel compelled. He doesn't want them to feel grudging about it, to feel sorrow over it. Because that would defeat the entire point. The whole point of the giving is to give with blessing, 
right? If you give because someone else told you to or you feel forced to, you're not giving in order to be a blessing. That's why Paul includes those pieces here in verse 7. And we then see the outcome on one who gives as is described here. If we give what we purpose in our heart, without compulsion, without grief, then we will be giving joyfully. And God loves a cheerful giver. Let's not skip over that too quickly. God loves a cheerful giver. That's just astounding. As we just mentioned, God provides everything in this transaction. He supplies the seed. He supplies even the willingness in our own heart to give. And then he even promises us rewards when we're obedient. Yet still, he pours out his love on the cheerful giver. How amazing our gracious God is. From these two verses, we see Paul's answer also to the question that's so often asked, how much should I give? Paul says, just as he has purposed in his heart. We should give the amount that we've purposed in our heart. But what does that mean? Let's look at what else we can find in Scripture regarding giving. First, let's consider tithing. We often hear that we need to give our tithes. But what is the tithe? The word translated tithe in Hebrew, ma'asar, means tenth part. Tithe simply means a tenth. And in the Old Testament Mosaic law, the children of Israel were required to pay three different tithes. They paid Levitical tithe, the Levitical tithe, which is the typical tithe you'd probably think of when you hear paying the tithe. We see that in Leviticus 27, 30 through 32, Numbers 18, 21, and 24. They also paid an annual festival tithe. You can see that in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 27. The festival tithe was to fund the festivals in the annual calendar of Israel, things like the Feast of Booths. Then there was also a third tithe, the triannual poor tithe. We see that in Deuteronomy 14, 28, and 29. And triannual just means once every three years. So in fact, every Israelite would pay at least 20% in tithes every year. And on the third year, they would pay 30%. And that tithe was to fund the operation of the nation of Israel. It was to care for the Levites. They were the priests. It was also to fund the festivals and to feed the poor. And being a theocracy, the religious leaders were also the governmental leaders. So the tithe in the Old Testament is very similar to what we pay in taxes. It was to fund the running of the government. Nowhere in the New Testament is there a requirement to continue tithing. We are no longer under a theocracy. Our giving is no longer to fund the government, and we do not tithe. But if we do not tithe, how much should we give? We can see many examples in Scripture of giving outside of tithing. One example is the giving for the work in the tent of meeting. We read about that earlier. Exodus 25, 1 and 2 says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak with the sons of Israel, so that they may take a contribution for me. From every man whose heart is willing, you shall take my contribution. And Exodus 35, 5. Take from among you a contribution of Yahweh. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it as a contribution to Yahweh, gold, silver, and bronze. And, 22 and 20, 21 and 22. And everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit was willing, 
came and brought the contribution to Yahweh for the work of the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Then all whose heart were willing, both men and women, came and brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and bracelets, all articles of gold. So did every man who waved it as a wave offering of gold to Yahweh. And you'll remember that it was called a free will offering later. And look at the language here. It's very simple, similar to 2 Corinthians 9. Every man whose heart is willing, whoever is of a willing heart, everyone whose heart was stirred. What that's saying is what they purposed in their heart to give joyfully, without compulsion, that's what they were to give. And notice Exodus 36. This is, this is astounding. We see the result of this kind of giving in the case of the tent of meeting. Exodus 36, 5 and 6. And they said to Moses, The people are bringing much more than enough for the service of the work which Yahweh commanded us to do. So Moses commanded, and a proclamation was passed throughout the camp, saying, Let no man or woman any longer do the work for the contributions of the sanctuary. Thus, the people were restrained from bringing any more. Imagine that. Their hearts were so overflowing with gratitude for what God had done and for what he was doing by being in their midst in the tent of meeting that they brought and purposed in their heart to give more than they could even use, so much so that they had to command them to stop bringing more. That's what joyful and bountiful giving looks like. And as that was a free will offering, we can read more about free will offerings in Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16.10 says, Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to Yahweh your God with a tribute of a free will offering of your hand, which you shall give just as Yahweh your God blesses you. And Deuteronomy 16.17, Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of Yahweh your God, which he has given you. And we can see the principle from here that we've read also in 2 Corinthians that you are to give as you have been blessed. It says, you shall give just as Yahweh your God blesses you and according to the blessing of Yahweh your God, which he has given you. And that just shows us that he who has been given more by God should give more. And he who has less will give less. So when you hear this idea of giving bountifully, it's not the amount that matters. The widow and her two mites should have proved that to us. It's about what we give in comparison to what we've been blessed with. So the one who has more should give more. And giving bountifully for the one who has more looks very different than giving bountifully for the one who can barely make ends meet. Zacchaeus gives us a great example of this in Luke 19.8. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. You see what Zacchaeus is doing here. He's purposing in his heart to give bountifully half of what he has. Not a tenth, not even 20%, half. And he was a very wealthy man. A half of what he had would have been a tremendous amount. Another important example that we should look at is Abram. I know what you're probably thinking as soon as I say Abram. But Abram tithed, right? We just said that we shouldn't tithe. But we should note that Abram's tithe is different than the tithing that we see instituted in the law. 
We read in Genesis 14, starting in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. Then he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then he gave him a tenth of all. And the King James translates there that he gave him tithes of all. And that's not a wrong translation. Tithes means 10%. But the LSB explains it more clearly. He gave him a tenth of all he had. That means that he gave 10% of all he had to Melchizedek. Why would he do that? Why give 10% to Melchizedek in this situation? He had no order to tithe. It was because he saw that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. And he purposed in his heart to give 10% of all he had to honor God. He gave abundantly to honor God. He saw this opportunity with Melchizedek, and he took it. And I can tell you that God blessed his giving. God blessed Zacchaeus' giving. How do I know that? Because I can read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. God promises to bless generous and bountiful giving with generous, bountiful blessings. A couple more passages that are helpful. Proverbs 19.17 He who is gracious to a poor man lends to Yahweh, and he will repay him for his bountiful deed. And then 2 Corinthians 8.12, which we read earlier. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And again, we see this principle of the one who gives should give more, the one who has more should give more. And from all of these things, we can get a picture of how much we should give. We should determine for ourselves or for our families how much we should give. Husbands, you should discuss with your wives and come to a determination of how much you will give as a family. And then you should regularly ask yourself, should I be giving more? Can I be giving more bountifully? I can tell you that I personally, I always want to be giving more because I always want to be receiving more blessing from God. So how then should we give? We see that we should give with an attitude of blessing. We should give generously. We should give proportionate to what we have. We should give joyfully. We should give without sorrow or compulsion. And we should give regularly. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 16.1. On the first day of the week, they were to bring their offering. So we've looked at the background and how we should give. Now, let's look at how God blesses generous givers in verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. And God is able to make every grace abound to you, so that in everything, at every time, having every sufficiency, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the needy, his righteousness stands forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all generosity, which through us is bringing about thanksgiving to God. In verses 8 to 11, Paul reinforces verse 6 by demonstrating how God blesses generous givers. In verse 8, God is able to make every grace abound to you. And note why. So that you may have an abundance For every good deed. 
God will give a great abundance to those who are generous so that they can continue being generous. And God will make them abound even more so that they can continue being more and more generous to the needy. And notice in the middle of the verse, he lays out the conditions for this abounding of grace from God. So that in everything, the idea there is in all situations in life, at every time, having every sufficiency. So in other words, in all situations, at all times, and to the extent of full sufficiency of God, God is able to make every grace abound to you, that you may have an abundance for every good deed. And note, every good deed there. That's the key point here in verse 8. God gives to generous givers because he knows that they'll use the abundance for every good deed. They will bless others with the blessing that they've received. Paul emphasizes the extent and the amount of blessing that comes to the generous giver in verse 8. And he reinforces this idea in verse 9. And here he quotes Psalm 112.9. Turn with me to Psalm 112. A deeper look at Psalm 112 is in order if we want to understand Paul's point here. That's Psalm 112, starting in verse 1. Praise Yah. How blessed is the man who fears Yahweh, who greatly delights in his commandments. His seed will be mighty on the earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness stands forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends, who sustains his works with justice. For he will never be shaken. The righteousness will be remembered forever. He will not fear an evil report. His heart is set, trusting in Yahweh. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has given freely to the needy. His righteousness stands forever. His horn will be raised in glory. The wicked will see it and be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. The man in Psalm 112 is blessed because he fears Yahweh, verse 1. Wealth and riches are in his house, verse 3. He is gracious and lends, verse 5. He does not fear evil, verses 7 and 8. He gives freely to the poor, verse 9. His righteousness stands forever, verse 9. And he will have a heavenly reward, verse 9. And Paul is attributing the qualities of this righteous man that is described in Psalm 110, who freely gives to the poor of his wealth, to the generous giver. The generous giver will be like this righteous man. They will have a righteousness that endures. Look at the end of verse 9. His horn will be raised in glory. His righteousness will endure forever. And Paul continues to demonstrate and reinforce God's blessing on the generous giver in verses 10 and 11, back in 2 Corinthians 9. He starts by reinforcing in the agrarian analogy that he's been using by quoting Isaiah 55:10 that God is the source of all. And without him, we would have nothing to give. Only because of the seed that God has given to us do we even have bountiful seed to sow in the first place. But to those who give generously, he will multiply their seed and he will increase their harvest of righteousness, reinforcing the point he just made in verse 9. 
the generous giver will have an abundance in order to give more abundantly. I appreciated Murray Harris's summary of verses 8 through 11 in his commentary. Quote, God continues to enrich benevolent people so that they can go on enriching others by their generosity. The greater the giving, the greater the enrichment. The greater the enrichment, the greater the resources to give. End quote. That's an apt summary of these verses. It's a virtuous cycle of giving and enrichment that leads on to a righteousness that endures and a storing up of treasures in heaven. Paul then wraps up the thought and transitions to his next thought at the end of verse 11 by reminding the Corinthians that their giving will produce thanksgiving to God when he delivers it to the final recipients in Jerusalem. We've seen the background and how we should give. Then we saw how God blesses generous givers. Now, let's look at the effect of the giving in verses 12 through 15. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also abounding through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proven character given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the generosity of your fellowship toward them and toward all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, long for you because of the surpassing grace of God on you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. In verses 12 through 15, we see the effects of the gift. It results in thanksgiving to God, praise to God, and prayer for the givers. In verse 12, Paul starts by describing the direct effect of the giving. He says, fully supplying the needs of the saints. And we see here the main answer to who we give. All throughout 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, we've seen that the giving was for the needy saints in Jerusalem. And Paul emphasizes that that will be accomplished through this collection in Corinth. And that's one of the primary reasons we give, to meet the needs of the saints. By the way, I'll briefly mention the other primary reasons that we give is to provide for the needy in our community. That's Galatians 6.10. And to those who minister minister to us faithfully in preaching and teaching. In other words, at Grace and Truth, that's our pastors Joseph and Peter. You can see that in 1 Timothy 5.17 and 18 and 1 Corinthians 9.8-11. But after this, Paul then goes on to describe that our giving also causes an abounding effect through many thanksgivings to God. And this is a ripple effect of giving. It abounds or ripples out in thanksgiving to God. Have you ever received an unexpected but desperately needed gift? Or have you ever been aware of someone who's needed that? What was your reaction to that? Were you not in awe of God's providence? and in thanksgiving to God for his amazing grace? That's exactly what Paul's describing here. The effect of their giving is that there's an overflowing of thanksgiving to God for their generous gift. And Paul continues to focus on God as the true giver here. The thanksgiving goes to God, not to the Corinthians. We rightly know that God is the one who's working and giving, and he deserves all the praise for it. The second effect of their giving is shown in verse 13. They will glorify God for your obedience. All who knew or heard of the Corinthian giving would glorify God first because 
their giving proves the reality of their faith and that they are obedient to the confession of the gospel of Christ. It is the clear teaching of the gospel of Christ that believers must give to the needy. We see that in Romans 12:13. Starting in verse 9 of Romans 12 we read, "Let love be without hypocrisy, by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good, being devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, being fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in affliction, being devoted to prayer." Contributing to the needs of the saints. Pursuing hospitality. So we do know that the gospel of Christ does require giving from believers. And there were many reasons to doubt whether the Corinthians were really true believers. All we have to do is read First and Second Corinthians to see why many at the time may have doubted. There was sexual immorality. There were divisions. There was worldly wisdom. There was lawsuits among believers. There was abuse of the Lord's table. There was rampant feminism and disorder in their worship. There were Judaizers preaching. There were anti-Paul leaders publicly denouncing Paul. First and Second Corinthians is full of material that would have fueled questions in the minds of many. Paul is telling them that all who learn of this giving, especially the believers in Jerusalem who may have been the most doubtful, being that they were Gentiles, will glorify God for his amazing work of saving faith in them, which is proved through their generous giving. You see that? Their giving is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of their true belief. And Paul's bringing, once again, reinforcing that point in our mind, that giving is not optional. All believers give. It's a command. Secondly, People will also glorify God because of their generosity of fellowship. In other words, the generous way which, which they, have shared, they have shared with them. That is the saints in Jerusalem. And indeed with all who are needy. Giving produces joy and thanksgiving which brings glory to God. The third effect of the Corinthian giving is that those who receive their gift will return that physical gift with a much more valuable spiritual one. And that they will pray for them. And they will long for them. In other words, they will have a genuine affection for them. A helpful rendering of the first half of this verse we can find in the Holman Christian Standard Bible Translation. It reads, And they will have deep affection for you in their prayers on your behalf. That's a good sense of this verse. Your giving will produce a deep affection and love in the recipients as they pray on your behalf. So let me ask you a question. Do you want Christians praying for you? Paul did. 2 Thessalonians 3, 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified, just as it did also with you, and that you will be rescued from perverse, sorry, that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. And Romans 15, 30 through 32. Now I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find rest in your company. And Paul repeatedly asks believers to pray for him, even for his physical needs. Here he asks to be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And also, 
to be rescued from perverse and evil men. Paul wanted believers to pray for them. And I can tell you, I want believers to pray for me. And I would, I would want that prayer to be coming from a place of genuine affection. And that's what Paul is telling us this giving accomplishes. Now, one point to consider as we think about this, wanting Christians to pray for us, which, which is a wonderful desire. No, Paul's speaking to the Corinthians generally here, not to individuals. He's not suggesting that we want everyone to know we personally gave to them. That would go against Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 3 and 4. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. It's not that these prayers that come from this indicate us personally. In this case, the believers in Jerusalem will know that the collection came from Corinth, and they will pray generally for the Corinthian believers. We can give in secret. It no way reduces the effectiveness of the prayers from those who are blessed by our giving. A simple prayer like, Lord, please, please grant abundant grace to the one who gave to my need, is just as effective as any prayer that calls us out specifically. Now, look at the end of verse 14. Paul brings all of this back into its proper perspective. Because of the surpassing grace of God in you. <coughs> and Paul creates an inclusio here from Romans 8.1 to 9.14 and 15. An inclusio is simply where you start and finish with the same idea. In this case, he starts in Romans 8.1 with the idea that it's the grace of God that allows the Macedonians to give. And he finishes in 2 Corinthians 9.14 by saying it's the grace of God that allows the Corinthians to, to give. And he bookends those two things. And it helps to cement in our minds that that's one package. It's one idea that he's sharing all throughout and that they're all connected. And they're all connected by that most important point that bookends it, which is it's the grace of God that's working in the givers. That's what we take away from this. Then he closes the entire section with a doxology. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That word indescribable here, it has this idea that it's too wonderful for words or human words are not adequate to describe. And Paul certainly is referring here to the grace of God that's active in human giving. But he's also alluding to the gift, the greatest gift, the gift of his son. And this doxology, it just fills my heart with joy. I just want to cry out with Paul, thanks be to God for your indescribable gift. Our God is such a gracious and awesome God. In verses 12 through 15, Paul turns the focus of the giving from the Corinthians back to the one on whom it belongs. God is the source of the giving. He is the one who blesses giving. And the effect of our giving is that God receives thanksgiving and glory. Can there be a better motivation for giving? Our giving directly contributes to God receiving the thanksgiving and the glory that he deserves. We started by looking at the background to Paul's teaching on giving in 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. 
we saw that Paul had commanded the Corinthians to take up a collection for the Jerusalem saints who were in deep poverty and need. The Corinthians were initially zealous and joyfully promised to give. The result of the Corinthian zeal was that the deeply sacrificial giving of the Macedonians, who gave abundantly with great joy out of their deep poverty. But sometime between Paul's ordering the Corinthians to give in 1 Corinthians 16 and the introduction of Judaizers and an anti-Paul offender, the Corinthians' zeal for the collection had waned. And they were at risk of not having the promised collection ready. So Paul sends this letter and Titus with a company to administer the collection and exhort them to give as they had promised that they would. We then saw how we should give in verses 6 and 7. We saw that we should give with an attitude of blessing. We should give generously. We should give what we've determined in our heart. And we should give proportionately to what we have. We should give joyfully. We should give without sorrow or compulsion. And that we should give regularly. Next, we looked at how God blesses generous givers in verses 8 through 11. We saw that God's response to generous giving is a virtuous cycle where God graciously gives to generous givers so that they can continue to be a blessing and even more generous giving, which leads to even more generous blessings from God, and so on and so on. Finally, we looked at the effect of giving. Paul brings his short interlude to teach on giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to a climactic conclusion as he shows that through our generous giving, God receives thanksgiving and glory from those who receive as well as those who see the graciousness of the gift. So, how should we think about all this? Let me ask you something. And I I want you to stop and listen. This is important. Most of us would quickly and easily affirm that God is omnipotent. He has the power to do all things. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. He is good. And we would affirm that we believe his word and that we want to honor and obey him. Do you all believe that? It's easy for us to say those things, even to affirm them intellectually. But take a minute now. Search your own heart. Do you really believe those things? How do you give? Do you give generously? Do you give with joy? With no regret? No sadness? Not out of compulsion? Not because I told you you should, or because you're supposed to, but because it's a joy for you to give to God? You should really think about this. Really examine your own heart. Because if you believe that God has the power to accomplish all his holy will, and you believe that he's faithful to complete his promises, and you read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, then you can only come to one conclusion, that you must give bountifully. Because bountiful giving only results in honor to God, into more bountiful receiving, into more bountiful giving. There's no downside here. So the only reason why we might not give is because we don't really believe some of those things. So please, think, test your own hearts, examine how you give and why, and see if you really believe that God has the power to bless those 
who give bountifully. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you again. All this, all of this chapter, 2 Corinthians 9, is just a clear way for us to see how gracious, how incredible you are. It just turns our heart towards thanksgiving and praise of you. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would examine why we give, how much we give. If we're giving out of compulsion, if we're giving out of sorrow or sadness. And Lord, that you would help us to see the joy and the blessing that comes from bountiful giving. Because we just want to honor you. We are just a people who desire to grow in holiness, Lord. And to follow your commands, to do your will, to be more like Christ. It's in Jesus' beautiful name I pray. Amen.